Welcome to the Tree Leaf Zendo podcast. Tree Leaf is a Soto Zen Sangha available anytime, anywhere at treeleaf.org. Come sit with us. So can everybody hear me? Okay. I tried out a, I hooked up a new microphone and I realized that might not have been a good idea because we knew that the old microphone at least worked. So. <laughs> so hello everybody. Um, it's wonderful to see you. Uh, you know, I, I haven't given very many talks, so, you know, cut me some slack, use a big grain of salt, all that stuff. Um, so as, as Jendo mentioned, I'm uh, hooked up to the internet 21st century style. And um, the big reason for that today is that uh, for the last 18 months or so, my wife and I have been working on a building a new home, which Jendo would have brought a, a hammer or something as a prop, but I'm actually sitting in the prop. So, so this is it, that, that wall and that wall and that door and all that stuff out behind it, it's all, it's all a new structure. Um, so it's been uh, challenging. <laughs> I think Jendo at some point told me he read that it's actually one of the, it's like, you know, it's like a death in the family or uh, facing sickness or something in terms of like just uh, a big stressor is, is buying a new home or building a new home or, or whatever. And it, it's a lot of change and, so yeah, it was, it was a little bit of stress. And um, I guess uh, that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about is it, it has been stressful and, you know, we sit and we, 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 we study the Buddha's words and, and we do these, these things uh, and stress still happens. We're householders, right? We, we are living out in the world. We have jobs and families and children and, and, and responsibilities. And so, you know, it's tough sometimes. And, uh, yeah, so <laughs> this was an example of tough and it got me, it got me thinking. And I guess I thought I'd, I'm going to start with just a little story about the, this process for me. Of, of building a home and um, having to find a way to deal with the stress of doing that. Uh, we really wanted to build a home that was three generations. It's my wife and I and our son, but also my mother-in-law um, who's come to live with us. She's having, she has some health issues and, and needs a little bit of help. And we wanted her close by where we could, where we could help out. 
Um, and then my wife and I also are self-employed and we needed, we need a space for our business. So it's a lot of stuff under this roof. It's a big roof. Um, and we knew this was something we'd only do once. I don't think we'll do this again. Um, please. I hope we don't do it again. <laughs> um, but that being the case, we also really wanted to try to do something that was socially conscious, environmentally conscious, um, was beautiful, uh, kind of reflected our aesthetic and, and view of the world. Um, so it's got solar panels on the roof and it's very well insulated and, and uh, the, the term of art nowadays is um, uh, it's a it's not a high efficiency home. It's a, uh, anyway, doesn't matter. Um, <clears throat> so uh, it should, you know, we should produce as much energy on site as we use in a year. Um, we use a lot of local materials. There's hemlock from just over the border in West Virginia. Um, all of the trees that we had to cut down to make room for the home, we found a, a sawmill and they uh, dried all the wood and then they cut it into boards and stuff like that. And, and like the trim that you see on the wall behind me is actually from right here. The tree lived like right here. Um, so there's a lot of things in the home that are like that. The, there's these big posts and beams upstairs and, and they were from a, 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 bull, a bull pine tree that was here. And a bunch of the counters are oak and they came from the oak trees. And anyway. So it was a long process, a lot of a lot of decisions, like literally a million decisions probably to make. And it, at some point, and I don't remember if somebody told me this, if I read it in a book, I don't know where it came from, but somebody said, you know, when you're when you're trying to to just get through all these decisions, and they said, you know, you should remind yourself to to uh, to focus on the process. So instead of worrying too much about the final thing, think about the final thing. Um, but you know, the actual outcome is probably kind of hazy. You don't really know what it's gonna be like. Um, and the idea of trying to make it perfect is sure to be painful. So let go of that and just focus on the process. So make one, don't make a million decisions, make a decision, make another decision, make another decision and just keep going. Um, and of course this is not Dharma, right? Like Jeno didn't need to chant to, to uh, open the sutras because focus on the process is not dharma. Um, but it was a pretty good coping mechanism for this, this project. And at some point I, I, I got so, I, I found it so useful that I wrote it on a post-it note and I stuck it on my desk um, where I would, you know, we would have all these phone calls with the designers and, you know, the checking in on the, on the wood at the mill and things like that. And, and uh, it just, I sort of internalized this thing. And over time it became, trust the process. And instead, focus is part of it, but also trust it. Um, and this felt more like Dharma to me, right? That uh, don't worry about end results, because there are no ends. Nothing begins, nothing ends. It changes, it flows, it becomes one thing and another. We live in a house, we adapt to the needs of that house as, it, as our lives change. Um, once a year, we trim all of the trees, 
<laughs> and we listen to the guys out there going snick, snick, snick. Um, and apparently once a month we change the candle. I just learned that today. It's once a month Shindo changes the candle, right? Like the, the, the Zendo is not finished. It's, it's a work in progress. It's, it's a thing that's alive and moving and changing. And, and this is the way our lives work too, right? Like we live in these bodies, just like we live in our homes and these bodies adapt to needs as they arise. Um, and ultimately they will decay too, just like our, our homes. Um, so I don't know, after a while, I started to think about everything as a process, right? It's not just building a house. It's everything we do as a process. And if we trust the process, the whole world just unfolds moment by moment by moment. And we don't forget what our goals are. It's good to have goals. Um, but we don't think we're going to get there and get the thing and then be finished. Right. Like we all know that that will happen. Right. Like, so, so instead we just trust the process. It's going to unfold no matter what we do, it's going to change and something new is going to arise. And Anyway, so this thing, this trust the process, which came from focus on the process, I eventually got rid of my post-it note and I wrote trust the process and I stuck that on my desk. And um, <laughs> still probably not Dharma, but I wondered about it, right? Like it feels kind of, it feels kind of like something maybe the Buddha would have said. And I guess this is true across uh, most forms of Buddhism, but certainly in the Mahayana, we have this idea of the four seals and seals in the sense of like, you know, you would stamp a thing to say, this is, this is true Dharma. This is the real, real enchilada. Um, and they're, they're kind of a litmus test to see if a teaching is in line with Buddhist teaching. Because in the Mahayana, we have lots of people, they're teaching, there's new teachings. The, the texts and the teachings of Mahayana Buddhism are alive. And Jindo expresses a dharma that probably at no point did the Buddha say that. But we can ask, well, is that in line with Buddhist teaching? And, and I, I, I'd like to say that, yes, I think that's usually true. <laughs> so... So that's what these that's what these four seals are about. And they give us a way to look at a teaching and say, is this is this in line with with sort of Buddhist teaching? Um, so, you know, uh, when somebody posts a Facebook meme and it, it sounds nice, like we can actually we could use these four seals to say, well, it does sound nice. But is that Buddhism? Um, so anyway, so what are these four seals? Um, these are kind of my wording of them. I looked at a, I looked at a couple of, uh, I looked at the Wikipedia and I read some articles and stuff like that. So, you know, take the way I worded these with a, with a grain of salt because everybody's going to word them a little differently because we're translating from Sanskrit and all that kind of thing. So the first seal, all phenomena or compound things or dharmas, I'm just going to say compound things, all compound things are empty without an inherent or self-existence. Two, all compound things are impermanent. Three, all emotions are dukkha. Four, 
Nirvana is beyond extremes or concepts or even description, depending on, again, on, on which particular version you look at. So, so we'll start out with all phenomena are without inherent or self-existence. And I guess the easiest way to look at this is really anything we examine, anything we can touch, anything we can think, any dharma is always going to be made of other things. So, um, uh, you know, the, this bell, right? I call it a bell, but it's made from, from brass or copper, brass and wood. Okay, cool. So we found it. There's wood and then there's, there's copper. But of course, the wood is, is made from fibers and water and sunlight and, you know, well, well what's, the, what's the fiber made from? Well, I don't know, a chemist or a biochem person could tell you, but, you know, we could, we could pick it apart and pick it apart and pick it apart and pick it apart. And so, you know, we ex I think it's not too hard to see that we accept that everything that we look at is made up of other things. But I think the second part of it is that the important bit of this is that it doesn't have an inherent self-existence. And that says that there's not some, there's not a, there's not a thing that defines that bell as bell. Bell is what I call it. Um, outside of my window right now, I can see like a bunch of, of dead branches on an oak tree. And I call them dead branches. Uh, throughout the day, there's a pelleated woodpecker who comes and, and hangs out on it, pecks for holes to, to look for bugs. Um, and is there often enough that I'm pretty sure that somewhere in that oak tree, there's a, there's a nest because pelleated woodpeckers are cavity nesters. So that pelleated woodpecker, I guarantee she calls it home. I call it dead tree. Um, it's been dead for quite a while. There's probably termites in it and they probably call it home or even food, right? And it's none of those things, although it is all of those things for a time. So, so I think that's the other part of this first uh, seal is that not only is there not, like is, is every, every compound thing is made up of other things, but there isn't an inherent thingness to it. That we bring a thingness to it. We call it a tree or a home or food. Um, so, you know, with, with building this house, um, there were trees here. I called them trees and they were alive and I really liked them. And I was really sad when we had to cut them down. But they were made of all these other things. And we were lucky enough to have a, a mill nearby and, and uh, the time required to turn them into wood that we could use. You, you have to put them in a kiln and dry them and then they get you know cut up and, and turned into boards and those boards then have to dry again because they'll warp and it's, you know, so we were lucky enough to have the time and people who were there who could do the work and they went from being trees to being trim house. Uh, that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so the second seal, all compound things are impermanent. 
So this sounds like the bad news, right? Like eventually the trim is still going to rot, whether we turned it into, turned the tree into trim or not, it's, it's going to disappear. It's going to fall apart because all these compound things that came together eventually have to separate. And sometimes that makes us sad. Uh, and, and I think it was easy to get caught up when we were building this house in the thing that we were making, but really like from a perspective look, building this was an exercise in, in suffering or dukkha because all we did for 18 months is take compound things and put them together to make a new compound thing. And so this second seal says, well, everything's going to fall apart. So, so we spent 18 months like making a thing that will fall apart and that's okay. Right. Like, I think that's, that's part of what makes Buddhism, I think something special and sane is we don't throw up our hands and take a nihilistic stance and say, well, pff, everything we do comes to nothing. Cause that's what it looks like, right? Like all the things that we did, all this work we did, it's going to fall apart. It's going to come to nothing. Um, but once you realize that everything is that way, you know, the, everything is that way. The, the, the dog that, the dog poop on the sidewalk and uh, the Abrams tanks in front of the, the Lincoln Memorial, for those of you who are in the U.S., right? Like all the things that we like and don't like, all of it is going to come apart. All compound things come apart. And somehow that makes it, there's comfort in that. There's an equality that all things will come apart. And so we care for the things that we care for. We just know that they don't inherently exist. The bell doesn't inherently exist. It, it's, it's parts and they came together and they made something beautiful or ugly, whatever that's up here. Um, and eventually they will come apart. And so I think that this is something that, that you can kind of struggle with because you kind of, you come to Buddhism and you find this message that there's literally no solid ground to stand on. There's no essential thing. There's no substance to my life. And that sounds, I don't know, a little scary. Uh, uh, I think a lot of us, we do want some kind of certainty and the only certainty that I think is offered in Buddhism is that there's no bottom. <laughs> We're all treading here. Um, and that's okay. Which is, I don't know, sometimes can be a tough thing to, to accept. And I think that there's a lot of teachings that point at this, right? Like this is the, the heart sutra that, that we, we chant every week, right? That form is emptiness and emptiness is form. That's what it's getting at is that there is no solidity, but it doesn't mean that things don't exist. The bell still exists. It just doesn't exist in the way that we conventionally think of it as existing in. It's stuff that came together and stuff that will fall apart. And so the way I've come to look at it because of my silly post-it note that says, trust the process is that everything is the process. The process is going on all the time. And it's not just 
the bell and the trees and the woodpecker and and what and Shendo's bushes being trimmed and <laughs> putting a new candle in the in the zendo. It's literally everything is like that. And I think maybe Dogen has a, a word that he uses sometimes in the Shobogenzo that I had a really hard time with for a while, which was Uji. And I, I think it's translated as time being. Um, and I couldn't, I had a hard time grasping it. Like, like what he's even pointing at, because it, it sounds kind of, I don't know, woo-tastic. Like, like there is time is being and being is time. And uh, I still don't know that I understand it, but I, but we're building here in the mountains and I, and I, we were down at the new river, which is this, which is a funny name because it's actually a really old river. The new river turns out to be a couple hundred million years old and maybe one of the oldest rivers on earth. So um, the new river gorge is something you've probably seen before, like on, on TV or on the internet or something where, where people bungee jump off the tall bridge into this really deep gorge. So one of the things that the new river has does is it's cut through these mountains and so there's places where, and we were on the side of the New River, and you could see this one day, is that there's a mountain, and it's kind of, you know, you can see the diagonal of the mountain, and you look down into the river, and there's lines in the river. And, and what it shows is that that diagonal line used to be flat. It's like sedimentary rock. It was the bottom of an ocean long ago. And then the earth twisted, and it went up like this. And then this river came along and cut through it. And so for the time being, it's a mountain and a river. For the time being, it was the bottom of the ocean. For the time being, it was literally a mountain before the river came and cut through it. Like for the time being, it's all of those things and it's, it's changing and alive and it's a process. Um, so that comes back. So we trust the processes. The process brings mountain and river and ocean and fish and bird and tree all to the same thing. It's pretty cool. Um, okay, so moving on. <laughs> all emotions are dukkha. So we just went from like this very ontological thing about all compound things being impermanent to all emotions are dukkha. Uh, and I, I kept this as dukkha because a lot of times we see in the West, in English translations of, of Buddhist works, dukkha will get translated as suffering. And I've just never liked that. And maybe that's my thing that I got to sit with, but it's not quite suffering. It's not quite pain. Um, and I read once, and I think this is probably not true because I only read it once, but it, but I want it to be true really badly. And that is that dukkha in Sanskrit was actually an automatopoeia. It was the sound of a wagon wheel out of true. So as the wagon went down the road, it kaduka, 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 kaduka. And I want that to be true. I don't, it probably isn't, but <laughs> that describes it, right? Like that wheel being out of true is probably painful to your rear end if you're sitting in the cart. Okay, so it is pain. And you probably really wish that it wasn't out of shape. So maybe there's some suffering, but it's also just a feeling that there's a lack, that there's something missing, that things are not quite the way you want them to be. Um, 
And I think we can see that in the way we interact with the things we really want. It's Friday night, right? Like a lot of us waited for Friday night because the work week is over if you're lucky enough to have a, a five-day work week. So wishing for Friday night on Thursday is dukkha. And then it's Friday night when the Zazen Kai is over and you're like, yeah, I got the whole weekend in front of you. I guarantee you, you're going to think, man, on Monday, I'm going to have to do blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and so no, wishing for Friday night is dukkha and knowing that Friday night, on Friday night that Monday is coming, that's dukkha too. And I think that, I don't know that that's, that's a fair way to, to describe it in Buddhist terms, but I do think that it's like that, that there's a, there's a story and I'm, I'm going to completely ruin it because I didn't actually look it up before this talk, but I remember there's a story where the, the Buddha goes to perhaps Nanda, not Ananda, but Nanda. And, uh, he shows him this heavenly realm with an empty throne and Nanda's like, wow, that's, that's a, like, there's these beautiful, you know, like men and women who are like watching over the realm and there's a golden throne. And he's like, that's amazing. And he asks one of the attendants, like whose throne is that? And they say, Oh, it's for, it's for the monk Nanda. Right now, he doesn't know he's going to become a monk, but he's going to become a monk. And, and eventually he'll be reborn into this realm and, and he will be king and rule over all things here. And Nanda's like, sweet. And he goes and he, he, he ordains with the Buddha and he, he joins the Sangha. And later, the, the Buddha takes him to another realm. And it's this hell realm and there's demons and there's, you know, pools of blood and lava and the whole thing. And there's a and there's a, a throne there. And Nanda says, Who's that throne for? And one of the demons says, Oh, it's for the monk Nanda. <laughs> Eventually, he's gonna fall out of that heavenly, out of this heavenly realm into the hell realm, and he's gonna be here, and this will be his throne in, in, in this hell realm. And so I think that that story to me like leads into the, the, the last thing, nirvana as beyond extremes, concepts, description. So awakening nirvana, whatever we want to call it, when Nanda thought it was going to be heavenly and awesome, he was in for a disappointment, dukkha. And when he thought it was going to be awful, he was in for disappointment and, and dukkha. Um, and so I think that it, when we sit, and Jundo has a lot of different ways of talking about this, that we sit with, you know, an open sky with things as they arise, just as they are. The really radical thing about doing that is that we're not pushing away the bad stuff that, it, that arises. Oh, this feels awful. My leg hurts. Eh, I wish it didn't. That's dukkha. And if we're sitting and everything is just right and you feel incredibly peaceful and, you know, there's just sort of a warm glow of the setting sun or whatever, imagine the, uh, the beautiful thing that may have happened to you on the cushion, that's dukkha too, because it's going to end, it's going to turn into something else. Like 
so dukkha is beyond so nirvana is beyond these extremes um, of of really wonderful and really awful um, and so I say that like I know what I'm talking about. I don't know what I'm talking about. I've not, I've not tasted nirvana, right? I've not tasted awakening. Well, maybe a tiny bit, a couple grains of, of uh, sugar. <laughs> but that's it at best. And I think you have too. For anybody that's still sitting and doing this, you probably feel like there's, there's some sanity to this. There's a, there's a, a rightness to it, but it isn't about the joy and it isn't about the sorrow. So how do we relate to that? Well, I think, you know, in Soto, we, everybody will say, well, just sit. Um, another way I think we could say it is don't, don't push. Don't fret about outcomes. Trust the process. Not trust the process because one day you're going to get a house and one day you're going to get enlightened. That's not it. That's not quite it. Trust the process. Just it unfolds. It unfolds. You know, the, the Buddha woke up and he still sat. Why did he still sit? It's like this, you know, why, why would he do such a thing? He awakened to the way all things were and then he went and sat again. So, so there must be something to the process. So trust the process. So trust the process. <laughs> Is it a Buddhist teaching? No, I don't, probably not. But it was, for me, it literally became this thing that I kind of was like holding it up against Buddhist teachings and thinking about it. And then Jundo asked if I would do a talk and I'd really been running this thing around in my head. So here you go. Here's my talk. It's, it's actually a, it's a big fat question is trust the process in line with Buddhist teaching. I don't know, but uh, it's probably as good as use the force or uh, Nanu Nanu. <laughs> if anybody remembers Nanu Nanu, I might be dating myself there. But Okay. Well, and then, so the last thing I wanted to do is read you a little poem by a guy that a bunch of us know really well who, uh, who built a house. I'm not going to read the title of it, so I want to see if you remember it. I've built a grass hut where there's nothing of value. After eating, I relax and enjoy a nap. When it was completed, fresh weeds appeared. Now it's been lived in, covered by weeds. The person in the hut lives here calmly, not stuck to inside, outside, or in between. Places worldly people live, he does not live. Realms worldly people love, he does not love. Though the hut is small, it includes the entire world. In 10 feet square, an old man illumines forms and their nature. A great vehicle bodhisattva trusts without doubt. The middling or lowly can't help wondering, will this hut perish or not? Perishable or not, the original master is present, not dwelling north or south, east or west. Firmly based on steadiness, it cannot be surpassed. A shining window below the green pines, jade palaces and vermilion towers can't compare with it. Just sitting with head covered, all things are at rest. Thus, this mountain monk doesn't understand anything at all. Living here, he no longer works to get free. 
Who would proudly arrange seats, trying to entice guests? Turn around the light to shine within, then just return. The vast, inconceivable source can't be faced or turned away from. Meet the ancestral teachers, be familiar with their instructions, bind grasses to build a hut and don't give up. Let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. Open your hands and walk innocent. Thousands of words, myriad interpretations, are only to free you from obstructions. If you want to know the undying person in the hut, don't separate from this skin bag here and now. That's the song of the Grassroof Hermitage by Shito, who, which we read last year, the year before. So, 10 feet square. I don't think he could have fit a business and mother in law in, but you know, I, I still agree with him. <laughs> so, that's, that's it. That's my talk. Anybody have any questions or comments? Okay, we'll take some. I just want to drop in uh, one point. Don't think that uh, even though we're householders that uh, Master Dogen didn't face this. There's a whole, uh, it's about two years uh, in his uh, record of his activities and talks where everything just stops. And it's the period when he was building Aheji. And the reason is he was probably dealing with the mill at the, and the wood and the carpenters and everything, this, there are no ceremonies, there's no record. He just uh, obviously was working on that. And AHG itself, you know, the buildings they have there now, they're not the original buildings. They've been replaced dozens of times over the centuries. Uh, anyone have a question for our master builder here? You're building a house, Danny, any question? Well, I was kind of wondering. Well, thank you very much. That was very inspiring. Um, so I was kind of wondering if you talk about the impermanence of things, if this kind of reminded you of not getting too attached to things. I mean, if you if you build a house and you pour all your, your wishes and feelings and, and emotions into it and, and sense of beauty and um, responsibility for your environment and sustainability and things and the idea that it could not work or collapse or be swept away or will you know. it will be <laughs> but I mean not like in 300 years but in your lifetime <laughs> Mentioned you're, you've been fixing a farmhouse in Switzerland for ages. France. France. Yeah. So I mean, when you said about the process, you know, the house that I'm building, I I build it. I don't think about it being finished. I think about building it, so I can relate to the process. But um, you know, the idea of yeah, not getting too attached to to have this idea and say, okay, this is an idea, but it is as important as you know preparing my next meal or you know getting ready for the next Zazenkai. How how do you feel about this? What are your comments on that? Well when you prepare your next meal, 
it's not going to last. You're going to be hungry tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I can tell you like a couple of things um, that we did that were part of the, we're, we're sort of paying homage to this idea. The exterior of the house is entirely clad in this hemlock, um, which uh, actually came from fairly nearby. It came over the from over the border in West Virginia. But one of the things we, one of the reasons we chose hemlock is that a it's it's fairly local, um, but b you don't have to do anything to it. Um, it's fairly it's like cedar in that it's fairly rot resistant and pest resistant. And so we wanted something that would age beautifully. It's going to age. It's going to fall apart. So we wanted something that would do that beautifully, right? And I think, you know, in, in Japanese, is that wabi-sabi? Is that the right term? Like when something is just naturally allowed to deteriorate. And so this, this hemlock, we, we did put a we, – we actually drove around the area um, – and looked at a lot of, there's a lot of old barns here that have hemlock siding. And some of them are 80, 90, 100 years old, and they still have color to them because like where they're shaded, there's still some orange and yellow, like they're sort of original woody color, but where they've been completely exposed to the elements, they've turned sort of gray and blue. And so even in a hundred years, like they, they haven't reached some final form. They're still changing. And we thought that was really cool. Um, I will say my wife and mother-in-law were less crazy about having like a house that went from orange to blue, like than I was. So we, we kind of met in the middle and we did put a little bit of oil on them um, that had some tinting to it so that it's a little closer to that gray. <laughs> than it would have been naturally. Um, But so, so we kind of, so here's this thing that we did like to just say, well, you know what, it's going to age and fall apart and either need to be repaired or replaced. Some kind of upkeep is going to need to be done because it changes. And it's this always in the process of breaking into its constituent elements. Um, And then the other thing I can say is just another little story is, uh, One of the things that I was the most excited about with using the oak tree, there was only one oak tree, the rest were pine. And so the mill did it, the people at the mill did such an amazing job of like using every little tiny piece. Um, But one of the big things we wanted to do with that that oak is turn it into the one of the countertops in the kitchen. So instead of having stone or or you know masonite or whatever, it's literally just this huge chunk of oak that it's not it's not treated with anything other than a little bit of oil so that it it stays it stays moist um and so it's almost like one big cutting block like if you have a chopping block so it was this big plan is we're gonna let that oak just be a huge slab of oak and we're gonna like you know cut our vegetables right on it and it was gonna be two inches thick so two i don't know inches really big and thick and i was excited about it so just before they got ready to do the final uh, like planing of it to turn it in nice and smooth, they discovered that there were borer beetles living inside of the wood and they had survived the first trip through the kiln 
and they just had stayed dormant in there. And now they were slowly like making their way out, which wouldn't be a problem, except that then they leave little holes in it. And if you're prepared, you know, when you wash it or whatever, water gets down in it and it could, you know, harbor bacteria and be bad for food handling. So we had to have them put it, plane it down to thinner and put it back in the kiln. And the kiln thing is not like, I pictured it as this like huge oven. And it's not, it's just kind of a place that keeps it really warm. And so the bugs actually can leave. So, you know, we weren't, <laughs> we weren't violating the precept not to take life because the bugs had an opportunity to leave if they wanted. Um, but so even here, so here we are, we're planning for this beautiful thing. It's going to be brand spanking new, this countertop, like there's literally bugs eating their way out of it. And I don't know, something about that was like a really important teaching that like this whole thing is still, it's still changing. And so I don't know, that was part of this thinking about it as a process, as opposed to a thing. Um, I don't know. Is that, is that helpful at all? <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? All our householders. Yakshin, are you uh, are you still a renter? Yes. <laughs> okay. I, well, I'll ask a question. And it's kind of a, the, the term can be serious because there are actual homeless people in this world and we all wish they had beautiful, safe, warm houses uh, for themselves. But how do you see the two words coming together? Homeless, like homeless Kodo, our uh, Nishijima Roshi's teacher, who just, he was free and wandered everywhere, so he was homeless. And you're a householder, so you're fixed to a place. How do these two terms come together for you? I guess it's a matter of, okay, well, two answers. The, the straight, like, boring answer is that I'm a little uncomfortable with it. I mean, I'll be completely honest. I'm a little uncomfortable with it. It's, it's huge. It's beautiful. Um, I'd be lying if I said I didn't feel a little guilty about this thing that we've done. Um, I'm also really grateful for the work that I'm able to do, that my wife is able to do, the fact that my mother-in-law had saved up all this money. I mean, she's not just living with us, she helped pay for this whole process and all that. So uh, I'm sometimes a little uncomfortable with, with where I am with that. Um, now, I think the other answer come, I think, you know, so that's maybe the relative answer. I think the other answer is that Ultimately, we're all homeless in the, in the sense that there's no, again, there's no solid ground to, to stand on. Everything is shifting and in motion and um, let go of it now or let go of it later because eventually you're going to have to let go of it. Um, and so I think that comes back to this Buddhist concept of grasping or attachment that it wasn't the Buddhist teaching, I think, on attachment is not just like, oh, I love my dog or my wife or my kid or my house or my whatever it is that I love. But it's the grasping. It's the holding on to it, not wanting it to change. Um, that said, I'm not homeless. I'm not 
Kodosawaki or, you know, so many monks and nuns that have come before and are alive right now in the world, literally homeless. I am not like them. Before we go, now is your chance. Uh, he also has lots of home improvement uh, tips, uh, varnishing. He uh, seems like an expert at this point. <laughs> Going one. Oh, yes. Shigen. Oh, Shigen was first. All right. Thank you, Sekshi. That was a great talk. And I know what you mean because we did renovations on here a couple years ago. And the only thing that comes to mind is we may understand emptiness as emptiness, but we understand that drywall dust is never empty. It will be with you forever. <laughs> and congrats on your new homeless home. Thank you. I, actually, I have, a, I have a little story about drywall dust. Um, and, and, and it has to, I don't know, this might help answer, it might, might go back to, to uh, Daniela's question as well. Shortly after we moved in, I mean, within like a week, it seemed like, you know, the HVAC system just did not work. When it was hot outside, it didn't make it cool. When it was cold outside, it didn't make it warm. And so we were like, uh oh, something didn't work right. And we had somebody come out and it never occurred to me, despite, you know, home ownership for many years, like to go check the filters because we just moved in. It's a brand new house. Well, no, the HVA systems, HVAC system been running for months while they sanded drywall, made cabinets, like did all that stuff. And when I opened up the thing to pull out the filters, they were disgusting. <laughs> so the house was old and needed maintenance before it was even finished. <laughs> Grass had already grown. <laughs> Jonin, you had a question? Yes, thank you, Sekshi. Wonderful, wonderful talk. And I really like how you put it very clear that it is the process of life, not actually the, the final goal of what we're going towards in, in our personal struggles. Um, but you said that building your house is not dharma i think you're saying that it's not like coming from the buddha or dogen but um being aware being present being mindful of uh, everything that's going on in in one time in, in your life and being aware of the lessons and being being able to uh, translate them into English so we can understand uh, that's Dharma in my book, my friend. So never say that. I, I think uh, you've had a great experience and um, I'm grateful that, that you can share that with us. And I will also be grateful if I can spend maybe a couple of months in vacation at your new home. <laughs> All of us together. Right. He's got the room now. Yes. And the internet. So even if you can't come, you can join in. 
All right. On that note, I guess I'll recite the verse to close the sutras because this was definitely the Dharma. All right. Oh, and the, the dog has joined us. May the merits of these teachings penetrate into each thing in all places so that we and every sentient being together may realize the Buddha's way. Thank you for joining us for the Tree Leaf Zendo podcast. Tree Leaf is an online practice place for people who cannot easily attend a Zen center due to health, location, work, childcare, or family needs. We provide netcast Zazen, retreats, discussion, Jukai, the support of fellow practitioners, interaction with a teacher, and all other activities of a Zen Buddhist Sangha, all fully online, accessible anytime, anywhere, without charge. Come build the future of online Zen community and practice.